This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Do British airports really face terrorist attacks and will the switch-on policy really work? Why does MI6 want to get at your emails and text messages? Who is the Islamist bomb maker that the CIA can't find? And why Headley Court is on the move thanks to the Duke? It will offer a fantastic patient experience uh, over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Emergency legislation is to be introduced in Parliament which will force phone and internet companies to continue logging records of people's phone calls, texts and internet use. A recent European court ruling removed the obligation for records to be kept for a year, which David Cameron believed might damage national security. Our police and our security services do an often unsung and truly incredible job, regularly putting themselves in grave danger to protect us from these threats. As Prime Minister, I would always ensure that they have the tools to do the job. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me as usual. Hello, as usual. Hello, Christopher. Why are we doing this? Why is he doing this? Well, as David Cameron just said, tools to do the job. MI6, MI5, GCHQ, the branch, etc. want to be able to get at emails, telephones, telephone records and text records because it is uh, an it is a way of trying to deal with terrorism, um, drug running, money laundering, etc. Now, the thing is, they can get at uh, the numbers, uh, they can get at the times the calls were made, but mm-hmm. not the content of anything. Mm. So they won't listen in, uh, they won't read the emails, and they won't read the text. Now, you, you've got to believe that, because that's what the guys down in Whitehall say would happen. The important thing is that the EU said, no, no, this is all wrong, you shouldn't keep all these records. Not for that long. And so that was in March. And so what this is, is legislation being rushed through to try and not change the law, but emphasise the British law, which says we can keep it for a long time. That's all it is. Mm. Nothing new is going to happen. but it, it's, it's maintaining the status quo, really. It's maintaining the status quo. But what it has done, of course, is got people saying, hey, I didn't know they did that. Are we sure they're not going to read the text, not going to read the emails, mm. and, and not going to get any records of uh, the, the actual people that, that we spoke to? Also this week, increased security at UK airports. Passengers being asked to switch on their laptops or prove they can, mobile devices, etc. Um, what do you make of all of that? Um, there are two things, really, here, and that is that if they believe that a bomber or a bomber's agent has a, let's say, something disguised in a, in, a, in, a, in a mobile telephone, which you can, which bombs we've looked at, suggest that's exactly what happens. Of course you don't switch them on, otherwise it would, it would go off at the wrong time. However, uh, talking to people who know more about it this weekend, it was, they said, well, you know, if you want a bomb on a plane, what do you do? You put it in your bag? Your whole bag. You know, that's where you put the aftershave and the and the big bottles of stuff. Mm. You put it there because they're never checked out. And so what do you do? You arrive and said, yes, of course my telephone works. Because if I want to, and I'm a suicide bomber, all I do is send a text to my baggage in the hold and goodbye. Mm. And so, it, it, but it's it's a deterrent. More than I suppose. Else. I mean, you you got to you can eliminate. You can't eliminate all the risks, can you? You can only reduce them as much as you can. There was another side of it, and that is that every time, if you're in anti-terrorist or uh, operation, you've got to say, I don't care if it might not work. 
let's do it in case it does. You, you, you mustn't just not do things so, because you can think of a reason it wouldn't work. So announcing these kind of security checks, does it make any difference in terms of deterring somebody from making an attempt? Well, it might do. It might do, because we don't know. But the most important thing is it's also a reminder to the public. And it's not just the United Kingdom. It's, it's supposedly worldwide, and there's the problem. One airport will do it, another one won't do it. And there's only one airline, in fact, that does a thorough check 100% all the time, and that's the Israeli airline. Mm. Let's talk briefly about those people <coughs> who make the bombs, and one very well-known person, Ibrahim al-Asiri. America wants him dead or alive. Who is this man exactly? Well, I think mostly they want him dead, actually. I mean, he's a 28-year-old. Uh, he first emerged, um, I suppose, exactly five years ago, around this time in uh, 2009. He's a Saudi, and he started working in, 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 in Yemen. And the idea of the Yemen is because that's where al-Qaeda broken away from, from the sort of Pakistan-Afghanistan area. Um, and he started making bombs. In fact, uh, you remember the Detroit bomb, the Christmas Eve bomb, or whatever it was called, um, in 2009, the Nigerian guy who had uh, explosives in his underwear, etc., and tried to explode a plane over Detroit. This fellow is supposed to have made these bombs. Now, the intelligence people say, we know it's this fellow because there was a pattern the way mm. he does it. He's got his own sort of, his, his sort of trademarks in, in the whole thing. What's fascinating about it is that, as far as one can say, he hasn't been that successful. But he is the bomb maker. He's the mastermind bomb maker. So they thought they killed him. Yeah. But they, they thought they killed him in a drone attack. But, he, but, he's, but he's still around. Surprising, actually, that he, ha he hasn't been found yet. Well, it is, I suppose. He lives probably up in uh, somewhere like um, Shabwa, one of those provinces in Yemen, mm. which the, the old handsome Al-Qaeda support him around there and keep him hidden and it just proves that 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 the idea the romantic idea that now oh yes you just send a drone you just pick him up from a satellite etc uh you you can you can you can get anybody mm. um you can't and they haven't got him yet and he's number one he is the number one on their target list on a totally different intelligence problem the german <coughs> government suspects it's got one of its intelligence officers and a defence official spying for the Americans. Merkel it, won't be happy about this, if it it's is, true. She is handbag-swinging over this, I tell you. Um, remember last year, um, she discovered that the Americans had been getting into um, mobile telephones, mm -hmm. um, which that was a big international incident as far as she was concerned. Uh, now they've discovered that there's a guy in an intelligence officer... They think he's been uh, vlogging secrets to the Americans. There's another fellow from the from the German Defense Ministry, and he's been mixing with the same sort of uh, American intelligence uh, um, intelligence officers in, in, in Berlin. What, what is it the Americans passing. would be wanting to know, though? Well, they want to know how, how. They will be wanting to know what she's thinking. They'll be wanting to know what preparations the Germans have, or if they have any preparations, their attitude towards towards Russia, to what's going on in Ukraine. And they want to know things that when they ask And they them, simply they just can't get round a table and talk about it. Oh, when they do get round the table, nobody believes what the <laughs> other guy is saying. It's not that the Americans don't believe the Germans. Germans don't believe the Americans. The French don't. We're all doing it. There isn't a single capital in Europe that isn't being bugged by allies. Still to come, a British general says NATO must boost defences against Russia, but the Defence Secretary says no way, and why Headley Court is moving to a new home. 
The only way is up. That's the message from this week's air power conference at the Royal United Services Institute in London. To emphasise this, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond reminded these services that the MOD will be spending £40 billion during the coming decade on military air power. Professor Malcolm Chalmers is RUSI's Director of UK Defence Policy Studies and joins us now. Hello to you, Professor Chalmers. Good to speak to you again. Is the RAF becoming the forgotten service? No, I don't think it is at all. The RAF has had many roles in operations over the last decade and more, and it will continue to be very important going forward. Of course, the role of the RAF is evolving as the role of British uh, military powers evolve, but uh, I certainly don't think it's the forgotten service. How often we get, do we get a political or public debate about the RAF and what it's for? Well, I think that we, we get a lot of political debates about military power and when it's appropriate to use it and, and whether it's useful or not. So I think it's partly that uh, maybe we get fewer uh, de- service-specific debates than we have in the past, and I think that's quite welcome. Uh, but it, the RAF, for example, played the lead role in military operations uh, in Libya recently, and it played a, an essential role in Afghanistan, getting our soldiers there and back and transporting them around when they were there protecting them from the air, having a key role in reconnaissance in Afghanistan. So there's a whole range of roles which the RAF has been involved in. But but we talk about how well things are going in Afghanistan or not, uh, rather than always looking at it from the, the service point of view. But I think I, I think it's, it's overstating the case to, to suggest that they are invisible. I think they are, actually. So um, what's your sense of how the RAF fits into the MOD's 30-year strategic forecast, which was published last week? Well, the the Global Strategic Trends, which is the document to which you're referring, is very much looking at at broad trends in the world in a very long timescale. So it's looking at things like climate change and potential massive technological change and demographics and all that sort of thing. And I think one of the things it is saying is that in 30 years' time, the world is going to look very different in technological terms. It's going to be even more interconnected than it is now. Just imagine the development of smartphones from nothing over the last decade and projecting that forward in our 30 years. It's very difficult to imagine what the world's going to look like, but it will require on the military side forces which are absolutely at the cutting edge technologically, which are very flexible and adaptable and as adaptable as our civilian economy and dealing with a very wide variety of threats. And I think not least, it will be a world in which what happens on the other side of the world will be even more important to us than it is now. Distance will become less important. Space is likely to become much more important. And all that plays into the importance of having uh, air forces closely integrated with the other services, which have the capability of being at the cutting edge technologically in relation Mm. to potential opponents, but in in all sorts of other ways too. Talking about uh, technological um, cutting edge stuff, uh, Christopher, the F-35's Lightning II is grounded in America because of this fire in an engine. Um, I I can't remember, excuse me, I can't remember an aeroplane that went into service without a long period of, well, it kindly glitches. Uh, the Americans are no exception to this. I don't think that the guys that are there at the moment, the RAF as well as the Navy air crews, I don't think they have the doubts that the plane is a good aircraft to fire, but it's got a lot of problems, and maybe it's a good idea that uh, 
that HMS um, um, Queen Elizabeth is not expected into service until 2020. They'll mm. never fixed. Professor Chalmers, your take on this? I think that's absolutely right, and, and there are many problems, but this is not the first time which is, I think the, the key thing is that this is an, um, a project in which the Americans are putting enormous investment. So whatever problems there are, the Americans will put the resources in to sorting them out. And that, that, that's a degree of security for the UK. Christopher? Um, the, the other thing to remember, of course, the Americans are buying these as well. So it's not just, like, can we fix them up for the Brits? Um, or they're buying the, there's a whole range of, of, of the other 35. Something, I mean, Malcolm was saying, that I think, very important that it is... You know, we do get rapid technological uh, imp improvements and developments, etc. And it's hard to predict, in fact, what they are. Problem with when you've got an aeroplane, you can't just change an aeroplane. You can't just change the uh, a squadron formation and say, OK, there's a better one coming along. An aeroplane, we talk about a carrier being around for 50 years. An aeroplane been around for 25 years. I mean, it may be, have different engines, different, different bits and pieces, and certainly different pilots. Um, but you, you are not stuck with it, but you're almost stuck with it. The other thing to remember, um, the Defence Secretary uh, is saying there's 40, I think it's £40 billion pounds going to be spent on yeah, military, exactly. military uh, air power over the next decade. Military air power. Don't forget, we're talking uh, a rotary wing, we're talking about Army Air Corps, we're talk talking about naval uh, aircraft as well. Uh, I think the aircraft is a big thing. The problem is, you send a ship out to sea, and there are lots of other ships with it, it's flag-waving, and people go and they see, and it goes across the sea, and you can remember the names. The problem with the RAF, they go straight up in the sky, they're gone. Mm. Uh, and it's very difficult to get that image, and that's why the, a lot of guys, guys in the RAF at the moment are working on a project called Trenchard 100, which is aimed at 2018, which is the 100th, 100th birthday anniversary of the foundation of the RAF. All right, Christmas Day with us. Professor Malcolm Chalmers from, from Rusi, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, thank you. Well, General Sir Richard Shiraf, until March, was the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe, says NATO, including the UK, ought to have a standing force in the Baltic and revive the idea of an ace mobile force. Here he is speaking at yesterday's Defence Committee in the House of Commons. It begins and ends with, with, with deterrence. And deterrence, as, as, as we all know, requires capability. Uh, it requires capability and it requires the ability to communicate uh, that capability to a potential adversary. So I think NATO is now in a position where, in order to adequately uh, in defend, defend the Baltic states, to send a very strong signal... Uh, to any potential adversary, and obviously if Russia's, uh, Russia's behaviour over Crimea is anything to go by, I think that the Baltic states are standing into danger. NATO needs to think through very carefully, not only deterrence, I think it needs to think through uh, a stationed, the, the, the issue of stationed forces in the Baltic. Uh, I think it needs to think through very carefully the issue of regular training in the Baltic. So now that sounds coming back to your question, all of the above. And flexible response. I think flexible response is a part of a part of deterrence, exactly. Yeah. So everything and more. Uh, Christopher, um, ACE, this ACE mobile force, what is it? Um, it's, uh, it, it is basically, command, well, it's a force which is the command and control and communications um, uh, element. What you've got to do, according to the general, is go back a few years. You go back to ACE Mobile, which is, as it says, mobile, that you exercise it, that you have the sort of exercises which are very important. They bring in the politicians. For example, you say, right, this is the scenario. We've got orange forces, which is them, and blue forces, which is us. And they're going to attack us, 
and we go on with this is how we're fighting day one day two day three day four uh it's all taking place let's say in the baltic right up towards the um, northern norway gap etc and you say to the politicians who are part of the exercise okay so we're getting to a point where we're looking towards military uh nuclear release in other words using nuclear weapons tactical nuclear weapons or whatever uh yeah. will you sign off for this and it brings the military and the politicians together mm. so they under, un, understand it now what was interesting is that philip hammond the defense secretary was there and he didn't think this was at all a good idea. He Why said, is that? Uh, because he doesn't want to get involved in the Baltic. I mean, anyway, we don't have the resources. But he, you know, this guy's been, been deputy secure for three years, a British general. It seems that the British general for three years at the top, the very top of NATO military side, did not agree with the British government. That's curious, isn't it? The Rehabilitation Centre for Injured Service Personnel at Headley Court is to be closed and moved to Stanford Hall in Nottinghamshire. 20,000 soldiers and veterans are treated at the centre every year. BFBS reporter James Hurst has spoken to Surgeon General for the Defence Medical Services, Air Marshal Paul Evans. It will offer a fantastic patient experience uh, over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And I think that's the, the crucial point, is that it offers the opportunity for patients to uh, get a better experience than they are able to currently at Headley Court. By that I mean, uh, if we look at first off at outpatients, uh, we will have state-of-the-art diagnostics in uh, the new facility, which will enable speedy diagnosis. Once you have a diagnosis, you can then start a treatment pathway, and of course the patients then can uh, benefit more quickly from from that. As far as inpatients go, uh, again you've got the inpatient facilities, whether it's hotel accommodation type or indeed wards, absolutely adjacent to where the treatment is carried out, uh, again making life and experience easier. Uh, we've got the, the outside with a running track, with uh, um, a rig that will enable people, um, you know, early uh, amputees to, to run and walk using that facility, and lots of countryside of course in the grounds to uh, practice uh, the rehabilitation. So I think from, from the patient's perspective it's, it's fantastic. I think from the staff's perspective again the accommodation that they will have and the working facilities in which they will work again will be state of the art and will last us through for the next 10 to 20 years but people will be wondering why close headley court i mean the, the care quality commission describe it, it it's care as exemplary it is i mean the, the care offered there is exemplary and there's no doubt about that as i've said but i think the point is is that if we look to the the medium to long-term future uh, headley court is not ideal in the sense that the accommodation is on one side of the road the treatment area is on a different side of the road and therefore if we can look to amalgamate that in a flexible facility which this new facility will be that's got to be of benefit also of course in moving it to the midlands we will have a site that's closer to um, uh, rcdm and birmingham where of course is the main receiving hospital for, for casualties and likewise it's probably fair to be fair easier to get to from the rest of the country than, than uh, around the m25 a lot of people will be saying a lot of money has been invested in headley court there are things like uh, hydrotherapy pools that, that can't be moved to a new centre. Why not, uh, if you need more space, have two centres? Well, I think the, the facility, you must remember that um, the DMRC, whether it's at Headley Court or at Stamford Hall, is part of our defence rehabilitation programme. That consists of units uh, at base level, so unit level uh, rehabilitation facilities, and our regional rehabilitation units as well. And they are centred purposely in the centres of military population. So I would argue that actually we don't need two. What we need is, is one that is flexible enough to meet all our needs for the future. Part of the facilities at Headley Courts have been paid for by public 
donations yes. by people giving to charities, yes. something like eight and a half million pounds on the Help yes. to Heroes Centre. Uh, did the public not have a right to feel a little aggrieved that after eight years that will simply be closed? Well, I think the, uh, the, the answer to whether and how it's used, of course, is a, is a matter for the head of court trustees. But as far as I'm concerned, in terms of, of betterment for patients, I think the public would understand that uh, we've had excellent value out of the facilities that have been provided for us, out of charitable money, and they will be replicated and, and I wouldn't say, I'd say bettered in certain areas, bettered in the new facility. And I think that's time moving on, and I think uh, we have to accept that. But as I say, if we, if we remember from the patient's perspective and the staff's perspective, it will provide a better, better uh, environment in which to treat people. What is the, the cost of, of this long-term move? Um, well, I mean, again, it's, it's donation, uh, and I'm not involved in the donation. I just am getting a, a very nice uh, new facility that's been kindly uh, driven by the Duke of Westminster. Uh, the exact cost you would need to, to refer to him. What we do know is that we will have a facility, and we do know that the Secretary of State is, uh, for Defence is content that uh, the onward-running costs are within the MOD's uh, abilities. That was Air Marshal Paul Evans, the Surgeon General, talking to James Hurst. Well, I'm joined by Brigadier Robin Bacon, Chief of Staff at ABF, the Soldiers' Charity. Good to speak to you today, Brigadier. Well, the Surgeon General's certainly very happy about this move. What do you think about the move to close Headley Court and build this new centre? Kate, thank you. I think many of us are quite sad to see the end of Headley Court. It's been an iconic place. It's done so much good. Uh, I mean, I heard all that... Um, the Air Marshal said about uh, being a new facility with all those uh, extra things that they have in it, and that's that's fantastic. I'm slightly worried about the way that it's funded because we do feel in the service charity world that uh, we're very happy and we exist to support servicemen and their families and so on. That's our only reason for existence. But uh, this is funded by donations, and downstream this could be something quite expensive. And really, why isn't there more of a government purse, you know, behind it? What kind of reaction do you think there would be from those people who've made donations towards what's been provided at Headley Court? Are they going to be dissatisfied that now it's being closed, do you think? I think if they th thought that uh, it was being better provided for uh, elsewhere, you know, up in Stamford Hall, then I suppose they could come to terms with that. But there has been a huge amount of charity input into what's been going on there. And uh, I, I sense that it just has to be handled incredibly carefully. I mean, other charities like Help Heroes have put in a huge amount, of course, and, and others. I mean, we fund a gardener for garden therapy there. And, of course, that sort of function can be moved. But I would say uh, another little thing which had struck me was it's a dream job for many people to work there. I mean, my wife's a therapist, and she would have loved to have worked at, at um, Headley Court. And I know that it's inevitable that some will be offered jobs up at uh, Stanford and some will, will move. But it's been, it's been somewhere which has been so special, and I do feel for the workforce. Mm, Christopher, uh, this new facility will be the Defence and National Rehabilitation Centre, meaning that it won't just be treating injured troops. That's right. I mean, it, it comes, the, the so-called D in, in, in this is very important. There has been traditionally a battle between the NHS and defence spending. And in some times there has been a battle of who pays what and what percentages are paid. And there was a very good case made out in 2008, for example, that instead of, instead of having a, um, a big centre, say like this, um, you had the facilities and expertise scattered through the regional health authorities 
and so that you could have a you could have regional contact for people that were going in as outpatients, for example, or short-term patients, and that might have been a better idea. But the funding for it was always the di- was was always the difficulty. The biggest the biggest uh, case that isn't resolved yet, and it's it's one that Billy Rums uh, mentioned there, is actually who pays. Mm. Why is this got to be funded privately? Why can't it be funded by the MOD and then do what they did, for example, at Hasler, the, the Naval Hospital at Portsmouth, and say, right, open it to the uh, health service and, and, and get the money back? How does it work, Brigadier Bacon, for a charity like yourselves? Are you going to get involved? It's called, they've set up this Black Stork charity, haven't they, to raise money for it. Are you going to be involved in that? Yes, they have. I, I think all the service charities, the leading charities, will be asked to help, and uh, we have no problem with doing that. But it's the sort of help that that we collectively like to give. And with it, something like the the patients' families centre, as you know, SAFA put in a huge centre near, near Headley Court, and, and uh, all the facilities that there are in Birmingham and so on as well, which the charities fund. And they're, they're almost the, the bolt-ons. We shouldn't be paying for the basics. You know, that's something that absolutely ought to be government-funded. But there's no suggestion that you would be, is there? No, there isn't. But there's just a bit of a danger the way this is, seems to be running in terms of... It, it's obviously hugely uh, facilitated by the generosity of the Duke of Westminster uh, and we thank him very much indeed for that but it's just downstream It's these things tend to get incredibly expensive in running costs and when the charities have to start paying out for this sort of thing it takes away our ability to fund the needy the, the individuals, the individual people who are not uh, old and young who are not actually in these centres but need our support, you know, the old National Service Veterans Malaya, Korean veterans, and so forth. Christopher, remember, remember the title of the, the whole project here. We're talking about a national rehabilitation centre, and this becomes particularly important from the military point of view, as we are, we all understand and we've all heard. There is a there is a problem here. Is when you try and link it to the NHS, the emphasis are going to be as national rehabilitation centre, not for the NHS. But for but the because, as I understand it, it, it is the military side of it that's going to be developed first and the NHS side is going to come later. Exactly that. And there is almost uh, almost an, uh, a sort of an obvious case being made out by some of the, the less funded, the less well-organised civilian rehabilitation centres who are saying that the services, for example, get much better treatment. Than, than civilians do in these cases. And so I think there's going to be, when this opens, is what, t- 2017, I think it is? Um, when 2018, a, it's going to be operational. It's mm. Operational in 2018. Um, it's going to be a lot of people looking at it and saying, OK, does it work? Does it work as intended? And why can you take chunks of it or, or the expertise and set that up in regional health authorities? That would make everybody get a better deal. OK, we'll have to leave it there. Brigadier Robin Bacon, Chief of Staff at ABF, the Soldiers' Charity, thank you for joining us. So, Christopher, before we uh, finish today, um, making friends and influencing people, let's talk a little bit about things like that around the world, starting with Iraq. Yeah, you wouldn't think there's any friendly side of Iraq going on at the moment, would you? But if you, if you? If you go back a few years, Iraq and Iran were at war with each other for a long time, more than six, seven years. And we were actually supporting Iraq, believe it or not. We were giving them weapons. The Iranians are now helping the Iraqis in their battle against ISIS. And one of the things they're doing... Because ISIS is Sunni, basically. ISIS is Sunni, basically, and 93% of the Iranians are Shia, and they don't want... Mm. And also, it extends to the whole war in Syria. So what what they've done, they've given them three aeroplanes. People say, oh, gosh, they've given them three Russian aeroplanes, uh, Sukhoi 25s. I reckon those three aeroplanes are the ones that Iraqi pilots 
flew for safety into Iran back in 1991 in the first Gold War. Case of um, return to sender, U.S. and China. Yeah, U.S. and China. Once a year, the Americans and the Chinese get together and they say uh, in Peking or or in New York and they discuss mutual problems. And one of the mutual problems at the moment is the world economy, but most importantly, North Korea. And that's what's happening, in fact, today. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting because if you look at Korea at the moment, in spite of all the, um, the, the new missile tests, there have been four missile tests in the past five days, um, I think the North Koreans are starting to warm up to the South Koreans. That would be incredible. That would be quite incredible. And in fact, you, nobody would actually believe that it would hold. But I think there are noises. I mean, reading small bits, and that's what you'd end up if you're watching these sort of places. Mm. Read the small bits. You read who made the statements, etc. And interestingly, uh, the boss is not making any statements about South Korea. That suggests he's got nothing big to say and nothing to be antagonistic. And far ever from friendship, Israel and Hamas, briefly. Oh, well, that has been absolutely so remarkable. Uh, the uh, uh, Shimon Peres, the Israeli prime, uh, president, he thinks there could, or says there could be a, a ground attack into, into the Gaza. Uh, very soon, he calls it. And Ban Ki-moon, uh, he said the whole thing's on a knife edge. And the United Nations Security Council is meeting in four hours' time. OK, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFP.